Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 184, recorded May 27th, 2020. I'm Brian Aachen. And I'm Michael Kennedy. And this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Thank you, DigitalOcean. Yeah, thanks, DigitalOcean. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm waiting, Michael. You're waiting? What are you waiting for? I'm waiting for the next async I.O. story. Uh, I, I guess it's my turn, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, let, let me see if I can get this right. So the topic I want to talk about is waiting in async I.O. Yeah, so the magic of async I.O., which was introduced in Python 3.4, never really appeared until Python 3.5 when the async and await keywords came into being, which let you write code that looks like standard single-threaded serial code but actually is multi-threaded or at least parallel concurrent to some degree. Depends on how you're running it, whether it's truly multi-threaded. Anyway, there's a lot of options, let's say, on how you can interact with these coroutines and these tasks that are generated by the async IO framework. And anytime there's like four ways to do something in programming, you should be asking yourself, one, why are there four ways to do this? But more importantly, when does way one apply best? And what scenario should I use way three? And what is the trade-off between two and four? And so on, right? So that's the case with async.io. There's tons of ways to wait or await things. And Hank, Hennick, get the pronunciation right for me. I know you got it. You got it. That's good. Yeah. Hank. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's just a running thing. I can never get it I right. I know. Well, I'm, the problem is, I think I had it right. And then we went back and forth so many times with so many variations. Now I'm, I'm, it's broken. Uh, sorry about messing up your name there. So I wrote a great article, though, called Waiting in Async IO that does exactly that, that says, here are all the ways, here's the pluses, and here's the minuses, and the situations in which you apply them. So if you're like serious about using Async IO and you're building real things... Basically, this podcast episode is for you because I have this and another one that bring two really cool ideas together. But let's talk about the waiting one first. So it's really easy to start doing some work, right? I can have two coroutines, let's say F and G, and I could say I want the result of F by saying, you know, result equals await calling F, and then result G equals await calling G. And that's fine if what you're looking for is more concurrent execution of that part of code, right? So if this is, say, in a web method, like a, a view, someone makes a request, and there's not a lot you can do to make things go faster, potentially, for that one request, but you can say, let the server be less busy so it could handle, like, 10 or 20 times more of the same request. All right, so this real simple, like, just await calling these functions, these async functions, it will allow your system to scale more, but it won't make things faster. Like, for example, if you're trying to crawl 20 web pages, this will not make it any faster. It'll just make your code more complicated. So don't do that, right? So there's other ways in which you want to do that. Another thing that I think a lot of people don't quite get is when you call one of these async functions, like async def function name, when you call it, it doesn't actually start it until you either await it or create a task from it. So if you call like F and then G, and you think you're going to come back and get to them later, now they're running. No, actually they're not, unless you've created a task which starts them. So you either have to await them, which blocks, or create these tasks to like kick them off. 
that's pretty interesting, right? Like that's not super obvious. I think normally when you call a function, it does a thing, yeah. but here not so much. So some other options, if you could call them both as create them as tasks, and then you could await those tasks, right? Because their tasks are already running and then you await them both, whichever one first finishes first doesn't matter. You wait till the first one's done and maybe the second one's already done. So that's probably the pattern that most people are going to be using. But you can also use async IO gather that takes one or more awaitables as a star args, and then it waits for them all to finish, which is pretty cool. And that itself is a, a future thing that you can await, right? So you would say await async IO dot gather. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, gather is awesome because I can create all these tasks and I say, I just need them all to be done. And when that's done, we can get the results and carry on. And what's cool is when you await gather, you get a tuple of results. So if I say async IO gather function one or task one, task two, then it returns the result one comma result two as a tuple. So you can gather them up and get all the answers back, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, one of the problems with gather, though, is you're saying, I'm willing to wait forever for this to finish. Mm. And sometimes that's fine, but sometimes things don't return correctly or ever or in the right amount of time. So you can use wait for which is nice and allows you to pass a timeout. But what's a little bit better than a wait for is there's an async timeout package on PyPI, which I'd not heard of. And you can basically create a block that will, a with block that will timeout. So you can say, I want to have an async with timeout five seconds and then do a whole bunch of function calls and awaiting and all that. And either they're all going to finish or when five seconds passes, everything gets canceled that hasn't finished. Oh, that's cool. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Another one that's really interesting is I start a bunch of work and then I would like to say I kick off, I'm doing web scraping and I want to go get the results of 20 web pages. I kick off 20 requests and then I want to process them as they complete. Like the first one that's done, I want to work on that. Then the next one, then the next one. So you can create a task or an iterable rather from saying async IO dot as completed and you give it a bunch of tasks and it gives you an iterator that you can for in over that gives you the first completed one then the second completed one and just blocks until the next one is completed so you kick a bunch off and then you just say for completed task in async iode as completed and you give it your running tasks that's really slick isn't it that is slick looks like it has a timeout also that you can add to it yeah very nice yep you can give it a timeout indeed now, there's a few more things covered in there, and I didn't go over the trade-offs too much. You know, here's the scenario where use this and that. So if, if you really care about this, two things to do. One is check out the article. It's got a lot of details, and each subsection has a little trade-offs. Here's the good, here's the bad, which is nice. And also, you can check out my async course, which talks about this and a whole bunch of other things on async as well. So I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. Nice. Yep. So I was talking about waiting. You're talking about, uh, what, being faster? That sounds better than just waiting around. <laughs> yes, being faster. Well, maybe being faster. I'm not sure. So I'm still on the fence. Anyway, so virtual environments. I use virtual environments. Do you use virtual environments? Anytime I have to install any. If pip install has to be typed, there's a virtual environment involved, yeah. Yeah, I use it for everything. Even if I've got a machine, like a build machine, that really only has one Python environment, and I'm only using it for one thing, I still set up a virtual environment. It's just always. And I've been, since the Python 3 started, Python 3 packaged uh, VENV with Python. So you can you can create virtual environments just with the built-in VENV package. And I've been using that. 
Now, before that was in there, and if you were in Python 2 land, you needed to use the pip installable virtual, virtual env package. Now, it is still updated and it is still being maintained. And I noticed, this was a conversation that started on Twitter this morning, that um, the virtual environment was still around and it was, uh, maybe you should use that. So I went and checked it out again, the documentation for it. And it says uh, virtual env is a tool tool to create isolated Python environments. We know this. Since Python 3.3, I guess, a subset of has been integrated into the standard library. Yep. The VENV module does not offer all the features of this library. Just to name some of the prominent ones, VNV is slower. And it's not extendable. And it cannot create environments with multiple Python versions. And you can't update it, update it with pip. And it doesn't have a programmatic API. Now, most of that, I just really don't care about. But the slower part, I do care about. So I gave it a shot this morning. I used time, the time function on the command line, just to time a couple of commands. Created virtual environments with both VENV and virtual env. And yeah, VENV takes a little over two seconds, two and a half seconds to finish, whereas uh, the virtual env version takes like quite a bit under half a second. So that's that's a lot. And I mean, if I'm doing a lot of virtual environments, I might care. Now, one of the things I, I was like coming back and forth, why why would I use VNV then if virtual environment, virtual env is faster? Well, you have to pip install virtual env. And so I'll have to remember to do that. I don't think I'll start teaching people this because it's just one more complication thing and a couple of seconds isn't that big of a deal. And I still like the prompt, the dash dash prompt. Virtual env supports that too, but it handles it different. It doesn't wrap your prompt in parentheses and and maybe that's just a nicety, but I kind of like it. I'm not sure. I'm on the fence as to where I, whether I should switch or, or use it. To me, it feels like I'm going to stick with VEMV. For a long time, I saw virtual EMV as just like, it's legacy stuff. It's there because before Python 3.3, you didn't have VMV built in, so you're going to need it. And a lot of the tutorials talked about it and whatnot. We recently covered it about why it got a big update and a lot of the things that it does that are nice. And the speed is cool. You know, maybe it wouldn't be that hard for to adopt the dash dash prompt dot feature, right? It's open source, right? It could get a PR that does that. Yeah. That, that would be pretty cool, actually. It, it probably should just so it's consistent. But to me, the idea of having another thing I've got to install somewhere, probably into my user profiles, Python packages, so that then I can then create virtual environments so that I can then install things over into that area. It's just, it's fine for me. But as somebody who does courses and teaching and other stuff like presentations, like it just seems like, okay, you just lost how many of people out of that, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, what is the value? Like you say, it's two seconds. One of the things, what I would like to see, and it would be really nice, maybe that would even push me over the edge, is it drives me crazy that I create a new virtual environment from the latest version of Python that I can possibly get on the planet, and it tells me that pip is out of date. Now, virtual environment didn't do that for me this morning. So it created a virtual environment with the newest pip in it. Oh, okay. See, now that's pretty nice because it's annoying to say, okay, what you do is create this virtual environment and you pip install this thing. Oh, look, there's always going to be a warning. So every single time what you're going to do is you're going to fix that warning by yeah. doing this. Right. So if it grabs the latest, that's actually kind of cool now that I think of it. 
I have a alias in my shell, my startup that I just type V E and V and it does the Python dash M V and V. And then it does an upgrade of pip and first it yeah. activates it. And then it does an upgrade of pip and setup tools all in like four characters. So that's what I've been doing these days. Yeah. I've got like a little snippet in my profile also that I'm using. Funny enough, I shared it recently on Twitter, just my like two line snippet that I used. <laughs> and then people kept on telling me to use all these other tools. Oh, you could just use this. Like it's not just use this. I'm, it's just a two line snippet in a profile. It's not a big deal. I don't even have to know what it is. I just typed these three characters. I'm good. <laughs> Why are you bothering me? Right? Why is this such a big deal? I know it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Anyway, what I would really like to see in none of these address is that something like kind of like Node.js, where it just has the virtual environment at the top level, and it just walks up until it finds the virtual environment. And maybe complains if it doesn't or, or does something like that, right? Like something to the effect where you say, here, I know that this is a feature, I forgot what it's called. It's like the local Python or something like that, but it's not just built into Python. So if I just went into that directory and tried to run it, it's not going to find and use that version of Python, you know? Oh, well, the Durin, there's a few, yes. there are a few packages that do that. And that's one of the things that people are directing me to is uh, Durenv. Durenv is cool. We should talk about it as a separate item. Yeah. It's worth it. But yeah, D-I-R-E-N-V is cool. Yeah, yeah. we should talk about that sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't <laughs> use up all our items all in one show, man. Come on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's thank our sponsor. So DigitalOcean is sponsoring this episode. And DigitalOcean just launched their virtual private cloud and new trust platform. Together, these make it easier to architect and run serious business applications with even stronger security and confidence. The Virtual Private Cloud, or VPC, allows you to create multiple private networks for your account or your team instead of having just one private network. DigitalOcean can auto-generate your private network's IP address range, or you can specify your own. You can now configure droplets to behave as internet gateways. And Trust Platform is a new microsite, provides you one place to get all your security and privacy questions answered and download their available security certifications. DigitalOcean is your trusted partner in the cloud. Visit pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean to get a $100 credit for new users to build something awesome. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for supporting the show, DigitalOcean. So before you had to wait on me, didn't you, Brian? It was frustrating. Yeah, I, I did have to await this. All right. Let me tell you about when you might not even be awaiting stuff and it, things are still slow. So there's this cool analysis done by Chris Wellens in an article called Latency in Asynchronous Python that I don't know if it talks about problems with async IO directly, but it it's more talks about when you have a misconception of how something works over there and then you apply a couple of patterns or behaviors to it it might not do what you think. So for probably the, the best example would be, there's he gives a, a good one, there's a couple. I'll, I'll focus on this, this one where it's basically generating too much work and what can be done about it. So he says, I was debugging a program that was having some significant problems, but it was based on async IO, and it would eventually take really long time for like, network responses to come back. And it's made of basically two parts. One is this thing that has to send a little heartbeat or receive a heartbeat or something. I don't remember if it's inbound or outbound, but it has to go beep, beep, beep once every, let's say, millisecond, right? So there's an async function, and it just 
rips through and just every one millisecond it kicks off one of these heartbeats. Totally simple, right? You just say await async IO dot whatever, like sleep for one millisecond, then do the thing and then and go on, right? You can basically allow other concurrent work to happen while you're awaiting this sort of like timeout and to do it on a regular time frame. And then there's this other stuff that has to do some computational work that takes not very long, like 10 milliseconds. So you're receiving a JSON request, you have to parse that JSON and do like a little bit of work, right? So because async IO runs really on a single thread, that 10 milliseconds is going to block out and stop the heartbeat for, for 10 milliseconds, which is, you know, whatever, it's fine. It's like, there's some little bit of variability, but it's no big deal. However, if you run a whole bunch of these, in his example, Chris said, let's run 200 of these computational things and like run, just start them up so that they can get put into this queue of work to be done. Well, the way it works is it all gets scheduled. It says, okay, we have a heartbeat and we have these 200 little slices of work, each of which is going to take 10 milliseconds. And there's a bunch of stuff around them that makes them a little bit slower, the scheduling and whatnot. And then we have a bunch of more heartbeats. So it goes beep, beep, block for two seconds. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. Where you would expect, okay, I've got all these heartbeats going and I've got 200 little async things. Let's like mix them up, right? Yeah. <laughs> like kind of yeah. share it fairly. And it does not do that at all. Oh, wow. So it talks about basically what some of the challenges are there. One is probably you shouldn't just give it that much work in some giant batch. <laughs> you should, you know, give it less work at a time, like some kind of mm. like work queue or, you know, he said, let's see if a semaphore can work. Now, I don't remember if semaphores are re-entrant or not. It didn't work. The semaphore didn't help at all, actually. He said, we can use a semaphore to lim- limit it to 10. But if semaphores are re-entrant, this is all one thread. It doesn't matter. Like, the semaphore won't block itself. So yeah. that's, uh, like, this normal threading, locking, and stuff like that, they kind of don't apply because there's not actual threading going on. So that doesn't really help. But he comes up with this example of, that the async IO has a job queue, which allows you to push work into it. And then you can like wait for it to be completed. And there's all sorts of cool patterns and like producer consumer stuff that you can put on there. So I actually put together an example. He has like little code snippets. I put together a running example in one whole program that demonstrates this. And I have a link to the gist in the show notes. And I also would like to just point out how much a fan of unsync I am, which I always get it. I always talk about when I, I can around this async stuff. Like unsync is a library that is 128 lines of Python and it unifies multiprocessing, async IO, threading, thread, like the all these different APIs into like a perfect thing that fits with async in a way. It's really, really nice. But applying like the standard unsync adjustments to this code to say like what you do is just put a decorator at unsync on the function. That's it. You still use await and async and await and all that kind of stuff. The problem is gone. Totally fixes it. Oh really? Like you don't have to go to the like crazy queues and all that. Like the problem is gone. It's it's fixed. Well, it's alleviated. It may still be like if you push it far enough under certain like more complex criteria. But the example that showed the problem, you just make them unsync and you await them. It just runs like you would have originally expected. Like unsync is so beautiful. Oh, that's cool. It doesn't change the way async IO works. It basically says, okay, the async work is going to run on a background thread and this other computational stuff will fit into the API, but will technically run on its own thread. So it's, it's not like changing the internals, but you use the same code 
And then now this doesn't have this problem because the way it slices them together is, is better, I think. Anyway, it's pretty interesting. It's worth a look. Also, I have a copy of that on the gist, and you can check that out and run it too. That's pretty cool. So Unsync allows you to possibly not think too much about whether you should have these things just be async or whether there should be threads or yeah. something. It does it. Uh, cool. Yeah, it's really neat. It just cleans everything up. But I sure hope they don't deprecate it, though. <laughs> oh, that's a better transition. I was going to say, thinking about speaking of the cleaning things up, but um, that works too. Uh, we'll just do both transitions. So, how to deprecate a PyPI package? So, you've put up a, a PyPI package, and for some reason, you don't want it to be up there. I don't want a puppy anymore. Why do I have to take care of this? <laughs> yeah. So, there's lots of reasons why this might happen, and one of them might just be. You accidentally, you didn't use the test PyPI and use the live one and you put up foo or some variant of foo and you didn't mean to. Maybe it's some other package that somebody took over and it's handling it better and you want people to use something else. But anyway, there's lots of reasons why you might. A guy named Paul McCann wrote a blog post about how to deprecate a PyPI package. So that he gives a few options, and I think these are cool. That um, one of the interesting things is he mentions is the PyPI doesn't really ha- give you direction as to what it should look like, uh, which one you should use. So he's giving his opinion, which is great. Uh, deprecate you might use a deprecation warning, and this doesn't really apply to entire packages. But um, let's say you've changed your API, so it might as well be listed here. It's a good thing to instead of just ripping out parts of your API, leave them in there, but make uh, deprecation warnings in there. They really should be errors instead of warnings if you were, or if you're really taking them out and just having the warning, something like a, an assert is probably better. But there is a good thing to think about whether, don't just rip it out, maybe, I don't know. But if you rip it out completely, the assert will happen automatically, so maybe that's a good thing. As far as packages, though, you could just delete it. So you can, PyPI does allow you to remove packages. I don't think that that's probably the right thing to do, usually ever. Unless you just pushed something up and it was an accident, then deleting it is fine. But if it's been up there for a while and people are using it, deleting it has a problem that somebody else could take over the name and possibly a malicious package could take over the name and start have people having install it. So there's problems with that. So it's probably not a good choice most of the time. The last two options are more reasonable. There's a redirect shim. So this is an example, like let's say there's an obvious package that is compatible, that is being better maintained and you want to push people over to there. If it's really very compatible, you can add a setup, a shim that just, and there's some code examples here to just, um, if somebody installs it, it just installs the other package also that people <laughs> I know should what you be want. Using. We'll give you that one. Yeah. <laughs> and even having, um, if somebody imports your package, it really just imports the other package too. That's a little weird, but it is interesting that it, it's an option. The thing I really like that probably the best is just a, a way to fail dur- during install. And there's a code example here for if somebody pip installs something and uh, all the packaging works, but the install part will throw a, a error and uh, you can put a message there redirecting people to use a different package or maybe just explain why you ripped this one out. So I think I like the last one best. So most of those are my commentary. But there's some <laughs> options for how to deal with it. So I thought that was good. Yeah, I really like the sort of, I tried to pip install it and it gives you, instead of just failing or being gone, it actually gives you a meaningful message. Like you should use this other package we're done. 
If you really intend to delete it, that's probably it. Yeah, and one of the interesting things, the last uh, couple, the redirect shim and the fail during install, those he gives example packages that do this. And some of these are just mistype things. Like if people mistype something, try, they maybe they meant something else and and uh, to redirecting there. Yeah, it seems so right only over at PyPI. And, you know, if uh, you make a mistake, it's it's not good. So knowing what to do. I mean, people depend on it, right? If you yank it out, then it's it's trouble. Yeah, but if it's mistake-driven, though, make sure you use the test interface first to play with things before you push garbage up there. There's Also, I'd really like people to not squat on names. There's a lot of cool package names out there that really have nothing meaningful there because somebody decided they wanted to grab a name and then yeah. didn't do anything with it. That's lame. Don't do that. Yeah, that's definitely lame. On the other hand, there are some times I'm like, how did you just get that name? There'll be like a new package, like secure or something like that. I'm like, how did you get that after all this time, right? It's it's crazy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Or up to 236,000 packages. That's pretty insane. Yeah. So Brian, would you like me to enlighten you a little bit in the listeners? <laughs> yes, please enlighten me. <laughs> so last time you brought up a cool progress bar. It was either last time or the time before. And it did all sorts of cool stuff. But here's yet another one. Again, an example of our listeners saying, oh, here's three cool things you talked about. But did you know there's these four others you've never heard of? <laughs> yeah. So Avram Lubkin sent over his progress bar package called Enlighten. And it's actually pretty cool. Like there's a bunch of cool progress bars with nice animations and stuff, but there's a few features of Enlighten that might make you choose it. One is you can have colored progress bars, which is nice, but more importantly, you can have multicolored progress bars. So let me throw out an example that I think would connect for you, given that you're a fan of PyTest. Like if you run some sort of series or sequence of operations and you want to show how far you're making it, but they have multiple outcomes like red is failure, green is success, and yellow is like skip or something like that. You could have a progress bar that has three segments, a red segment, a, a yellow segment, and a green segment. And they could it could be all one bar, but it could kind of like show you as it grows, here's the level of failure, here's the level of success, and so on. All with color, 24-bit uh, color, not just like eight colors either. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. That's yeah, cool. Isn't that, isn't that nice? So those just go off. The other one is a lot of these progress bars, they'll sort of control, they'll be rewriting the screen, right? They'll be putting stuff across as it's happening. But if you happen to do like a print statement, effectively writing a standard out or an, an exception that writes a standard error or something like that, it you know messes them all up, right? So this one works well, even allows you to write print statements while it's working. So the print statements kind of flow by above it, but it's you know, whatever part of the screen it's taken over, it still is managing that as well. So it overrides what print means or standard out and sends it where it belongs. That's cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It also automatically handles resizing, except on Windows. And where it says except on Windows, I'm not sure if that means on the new terminal, Windows terminal that they came out with that's much closer to what we have over on Mac and Linux, or if it just means it doesn't work on Windows at all. I suspect it it might work on the new Windows terminal that just got went 1.0, but certainly not on CMD. Okay. Who uses CMD? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what comes with Windows if you don't like go out of the way to get something, right? Like Commander or the new terminal or something like that. Yeah, but you got to install Git at least on Windows anyway, and then you got Bash yeah, that comes true. with it. So That's true. So like all good things that have actions and behaviors, 
and our visual, there's a nice little animation even on the pypi.org page. So if you go there, you can watch and actually see the the stuff scrolling by. It's like an animated GIF right on the pypi page. So very, very nice. Well done. You know, the multicolored progress bars, it does seem pretty awesome if that's your use case. I want rainbow ones. I want to do a rainbow. Yes. That's Maybe cool. with like little unicorns just shooting out of it and just like all sorts of crit. Yeah. Sounds good. Yes. Stars and unicorns. <laughs> yes. It would be perfect. Yeah. Let's have that. And people are starting to catch on that we like animations because they'll include it in the suggestion. And by the way, it has an animation. Please watch it here. Yeah. Good job. Bringing it up. Yeah. (laughs) You're part of it. Awesome. Well, nice work on that progress bar library. It seems simple and uh, well done. Speaking of unicorns, I want to talk about oceans. Wait, unicorns don't live in the ocean. Mermaids. Oh, well. Mermaids. Mermaids. Let's go with mermaids. So I want to talk about Code Ocean. So this was contributed by Daniel Mulkey. So this is a pretty neat thing. So Codation is a, a paid service, but there's a free tier. And it's a research collaboration platform that supports researchers uh, from the beginning of a project through publication. So this is kind of this neat thing. I'm going to read a little bit from their about page. We built a platform that can help give researchers back 20% of the time they spend troubleshooting technology in order to run and reproduce past work before completing new experiments. And CodeOcean is an open access platform for code and data where users can develop, share, publish, and download code through a web browser, eliminating the need to install software, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, mission is to make research easier. So this idea is you can have like code snippets like uh, Jupyter and Python and, and even things like MATLAB and C++ code running with the data in this kind of environment that you can collaborate with other people and uh, just sort of build up these data sets and the science and the code and all bundled together. And it's pretty cool. It also collaborates with some, one of the goals of it is to be able to have all of this reproducible code and data together in a form that's uh, acceptable to to journals. And one of the reasons why it was contributed is Daniel said that one of the peer-reviewed journals that he reads, it happened to be SPIE's Optical Engineering Journal, recommended this platform for associating code with the article. So people trying to be do science and be published, associating a code ocean space with it is an option. That's cool. And if it gets accepted by editors as, yeah, that's what you do, then it just makes it easier. Like It's kind of like saying, oh, you have an open source project. What's the GitHub URL? Right? Not is it on GitHub, just where on GitHub is it? Yeah. I do technically know that there's GitLab and other places, but like most of the code lives on GitHub is what I was getting at, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Well, this looks pretty neat. I do think there's a lot of interesting takes on reproducibility in science and... That's definitely a good thing. There's this, there's Binder, which is doing a lot of interesting stuff, although not as focused on exact reproducibility, but still nice. There's Gigantum, which is also a a cool platform for this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of options, and it's nice to see more of them like CodeOcean. Yeah, nice. Well, that's our six. Do you have anything extra for us today? Uh, I'm going to try to connect this to Python because I want to because exci- I am excited about it. How long has it been since astronauts have been launched into space in, from, from NASA and from the U.S.? Like It's been a really long time, ever since the space shuttle got shut down four or five years I, ago. I heard it was like over 10, but I could have heard wrong. It's very possible. It's been a very long time. So today, I know this doesn't help you folks listening because 
the time it takes us to get this episode out. But so hopefully this went well. But I'm super excited for SpaceX's launch in collaboration with NASA to send two astronauts up into space. Wow, are those guys brave to get on to one of these rockets? <laughs> and, <laughs> but also, I think there's probably somewhere in the mix a lot of Python in action. If you go to SpaceX, they had, last time I looked at one random point a couple months ago, they had 92 open positions for Python developers. Oh, wow. I don't know if that's 92 people they were looking for, but at least there was 92 roles they were trying to fill. There could be multiple people into any one role. So that's a lot of Python. And so somehow in this launch, there's got to be some interesting stories around Python. And this is mostly to say, one, it's awesome that SpaceX and NASA are doing this. Hopefully this goes well. Lots and lots of luck to that. But also, if anyone knows how to connect us with the people inside SpaceX doing awesome rocket stuff with Python, those would make great stories. We would love to hear about those and introductions and whatnot. Yeah, that would be cool. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. I do hope it goes well. And I heard that possibly there was weather problems that might crop up, but we'll... Well, maybe people will get to watch this. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it'll be delayed for a week. We'll see. Awesome. How about you? What do you got? I just downloaded 3.90 beta 1. So Python 3.9 beta 1 is available for testing. If you are maintaining a package or any other maintaining your application, you probably ought to download it and make sure your stuff works with 3.9. So. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And because it's a beta now, it should be frozen in terms of features and APIs and stuff, right? It's it's no longer yeah. changing. So it's, it's now time to start making sure your stuff works and yelling if it doesn't. Yeah, right. And another reason to download it is the prompt virtual vnv with the prompt with the d- magic dot that turns <laughs> dash, your directory prompt name dot, yeah yeah that is in three nine yeah super cool awesome well that's not very funny but i i could tell you something that is and it's very relevant to your item here actually okay you ready for this so open up this uh this link here and uh y'all i'll put the link in the show notes because this is a visual i gotta describe it to you so this was sent over by Stephen howell thank you f- for that and this would be better during halloween but halloween's far away so we're gonna do it this way so there's a person standing around, and there's a ghost standing behind them, right? Yeah. The ghost says, boo. Person doesn't react. Boo. Person doesn't react. Boo. Person doesn't react. The person says, Python 2.7. Ah! The person runs away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. It's good, right? Yeah. yeah. You got one as well. What do you got here? Well, I'm going to get haters for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So somebody named Bert sent us a, a meta joke. Because we have used pie jokes before. We love pie jokes. And I'm going to modify it a little bit. So what does pie jokes have in common with Java? It gets updated all the time, but never gets any better. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. Uh, I don't even really use Java, but I have a Java tool on my desktop. And so I get like, Java's updated. Do you want to do the update? All the time. Make it stop. Yeah. Make it stop. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, pie jokes is good. If if you all need some programming jokes, just pip install dash dash user. Pie jokes, and then you can type pie joke anytime you want. Yeah, I had to change it because the original joke was like about Flash, Adobe Flash, and who has that? Is that even a thing anymore? (laughs) Yeah, I don't even think it gets updated anymore. I don't know, maybe it does. I sure hope it's not on my computer. (laughs) Yeah, it's a security flaw. Yeah, it totally is. Awesome. All right, well, very funny. All right, thank you. Yep, you bet. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. 
If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. This is Brian Aachen, and on behalf of myself and Michael Kennedy, thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.